Salutations, listeners. You are listening to another episode of the Dr. Jazz Podcast, and I'm your host, Nathan Holloway, your doctor for jazz. And it is our mission here at the Dr. Jazz Podcast to cure whatever it is that ails you through the power and the majesty of jazz music. Now, I'm very excited to be back for this episode because what we're doing is a huge deep dive. Um, We are going to specifically be targeting the years 1923 and 1924. And I cannot take full credit for this because it it is not my idea. You know, um, I'm a fair person. I believe in giving credit where credit is due. The idea and the impetus for this particular show uh, that we are calling The Moment Before the Explosion was actually conceived through uh, a book by author Ted Joya called How to Listen to Jazz. And he talked about how he, for two weeks, two full weeks, listened to like Wilbur Sweatman and all these folks before listening to Louis Armstrong to truly appreciate the revolutionary sounds and solos of the great Louis Armstrong. And um, (laughs) I'm like, wow, what a concept, you know? And it's basically because we as jazz listeners are very desensitized to the revolutionary things that happened back then because we're so used to Bird and Monk and Dizzy and Train and Mingus and Sonny Rollins and you know, Albert Eiler and everybody else, you know. So the idea here is that I wanted to go a little bit further than just Wilbur Sweat, you know, for, you know, Ted Joya's sake. And I really wanted to talk about and kind of take you completely back to some recordings from 1923 and 1924 to give you an overall sense of, like, just for one podcast, a snapshot into that very specific time period so come and join us we've got a bunch of great tracks there's it's not going to be the typical format of like three songs and then like talk a little bit so we're going to be popping in and out but the songs are short but we're going to give you context as you listen so thank you so much for listening this is the moment before the explosion so let's get to some fantastic music
track was the great empress of the blues bessie smith and it actually featured clarence williams on the piano <clears throat> who we're going to be hearing from later uh it was recorded in april of 1923 and um it was i mean bessie was you know one of the the queens of the blues at this point in time um i mean actually given this point in time that she recorded it in april of 1923 uh it should be said a little backstory here that the song ain't nobody's business you know or originally written taint nobody's business if i do was first published in 1922 so it was a brand new song at that point in time and it was uh, published in 1922 by Porter Granger and Everett Robbins um, it was originally recorded uh, by Anna Myers backed by the original Memphis Five uh, but it was recorded many 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 times after that not just by the great Bessie Smith that we heard but also Sarah Martin Alberta Hunter um, and then it was later on, I'm sure, that this recording by Bessie Smith was a huge inspiration to Billie Holiday, who recorded it later on as well. Um, you know, Billie Holiday always said that she wanted to be the combination between Pops and Bessie Smith, which was, you know, Louis Armstrong and Bessie Smith. So, you know, her roots obviously run very, very, very deep. And she probably had this record and, and adored it. So that gives you an idea um, of the impact that this particular recording had, even though it was 1923. Now, <clears throat> before that, we started off the set with Tin Roof Blues by the New Orleans Rhythm Kings, featuring a piano player you may have heard of, especially if you've, you're a frequent listener of this podcast, Uh, The piano player on that particular session was the great Jelly Roll Morton. 
with the New Orleans Rhythm Kings. Uh, but that recording was made in March of 1923, and it featured... Um, well, first of all, it was written by uh, Paul Mayers, Ben Pollock, Mel Stitzel, George Brunies, and Leonra Polo. Um, so, there you go. Uh, which is, you know, the New Orleans Rhythm Kings. Uh, it was recorded for the Jeanette Record Company uh, back in March 23, which was in Richmond, Indiana. And uh, it's since become a jazz standard. You know, uh, that's, uh, I think, a very <laughs> understatement. <laughs> it was a huge understatement. Um, but, yeah, it was recorded on March 13th, 1923. Um, it, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, if you get into the New Orleans Rhythm Kings, you can really hear, even just in, in, in their approach to the music, um, it's this weird middle ground because, you know, this is far from the very first recorded jazz records. The very first recorded jazz record was actually the original Dixieland Jazz Band uh, in 1917. So, you know, we're talking, you know, six years past that point. And what's interesting about the, the New Orleans Rhythm Kings, specifically with Jelly Roll Morton, who is, you know, a force unto himself, and all the the, the reputation that comes with it. Um, which is, what's interesting is that the New Orleans Rhythm Kings, even for their time period, were improvising more on these records than the original Dixieland Jazz Band did. So they were progressive for their time period, but yet they were still improvising less, so to speak, than, you know, people who were recording at that time like Freddie Keppard and King Oliver and his, you know, groups and stuff like that and Jimmy Noon. So they were this middle ground, you know, George Brunies and Leon Rapolo and, and, and those cats, Paul Mayers. They were improvising more than what had come before, but not as much as what was even currently happening or what was to eventually happen even more in the recorded history of jazz. So I think that that's worth noting uh, that they were kind of the ones who were starting to push a little bit, but not as far as other groups, to be fair. right? Uh, but it you cannot disregard their, their composition, Ten Roof Blues, because... That standard is still being played in New Orleans and all over the world today. So, there you go. Um, <clears throat> yeah. And to ice cream lovers everywhere, have a tin roof while you listen to the New Orleans Rhythm Kings. So, there you go. Uh, once again, the whole idea behind this, this podcast is to give you um, a kind of watershed moment here. You know what I mean? Uh it's the I call it the moment before the explosion because it wasn't the beginning of recorded jazz. You know, as I said, that was 1917 with the original Dixieland Jazz Band, and it wasn't uh, the moment that like Louis Armstrong joined King Oliver and his Creole Jazz Band, and it's not Louis's first recorded solo, even though that was very important. Um, 
what we're here to do is we're going to give you the lead up in, in, a, in, in a very condensed podcast. We are going to give you the lead up to what was to be the very first recordings of Louis Armstrong's Hot Five. Now, you may roll your eyes and you know at, at that and stuff, but the idea is that that's super important, but it, we're, we are, and I, I'm guilty of it as well, we are very desensitized, right? So, that being said, this whole podcast is to give you some explanation, some background, some context, and to give you what Ted Joya did for two weeks, but in one podcast. So, no, this podcast will not be two weeks. I don't have near the amount of coffee for that. So, <clears throat> but as we talk through it, keep in mind everything that's going on. We're talking about the beginning of the Roaring Twenties. We're talking about the fact that right now, and where we're at chronologically speaking, we, you know, we're at uh, April of 1923. Warren G. Harding, Warren G. is president <laughs> of the United States, and. You know, he he was not that great of a president. He was known for his his shady backdoor deals and shit like that. But um, the point is, is that you had that going on, and we were also, you know, a few years into the whole Prohibition Act. So alcohol is illegal right now in the United States. We're not even halfway through that. Right. At the same time that it's the roaring 20s, because, you know, as you may realize, probably from the news of the past year, there was a huge pandemic going on in 1918 <clears throat> with the whole Spanish flu, the Spanish influenza. Right. So and they didn't have vaccines readily available at that point in time back then. They just kind of had to let it run its course. So you're coming off of World War One. You're coming off of a huge global pandemic, and it's the Roaring Twenties. People are finally starting to get better. People are finally starting to stop wearing masks, you know, because you see the, all the pictures from, you know, people wearing masks from the 1918 pandemic. So good times are here again, right? It's the Roaring Twenties. It's all the things... Gatsby-esque, so to speak, right? Uh, and everybody was acting as emotionally mature as Elda Fitzgerald. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> so that's the point. That gives you a little bit of context of what's going on, okay? And this is the soundtrack for that time. Now, real quick, appreciate you listening. Quick PSA, if you want info on this episode of the Dr. Jazz podcast and the album art and the titles of each songs. We've got that on our website. That website is Dr. Jazz podcast, D R J A Z Z podcast.wordpress.com. Please feel free to leave a message or a review. We'd love to hear from you. And you can find the Dr. Jazz podcast wherever you find your podcasts, whether that's Apple podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, any place like that. And please share with your friends, especially if you think they dig some jazz. So, that being said, enough talking from me. Let's get to two more recordings that were recorded in April 1923, the same month that Bessie Smith recorded Taint Nobody's Business If I Do. 
And this was a very popular and very influential recording. You're listening to the Dr. Jazz Podcast.
All right. So, two excellent, excellent, excellent recordings from 1923. Both recorded in April of 1923, and in fact, actually at the exact same session. Uh, that was none other than the legendary legend, wait for it, Dairy. <laughs> King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band from 1923. Those are like the primo recordings from King Oliver, right? Okay, so it's interesting to note that um, King Oliver was a master, um, what they like to call, you know, a a freak back then, right? And it's not like freak now, you know what I mean? Um, But back then, that means that you use all these different uh, things on your instrument to create different sounds, and and while that sounds primitive, keep in mind we're talking it's the nineteen early nineteen twenties, right? So even jazz music itself being recorded is a very new thing, relatively speaking. I mean, it's six years into it, but nonetheless, you get the point. So we're we're talking from a perspective of you know um, 104 years past that point. So there you go. Um, but what's interesting to note is that he would use different mutes and different like uh, plungers and things like that to get a very vocal kind of quality from the trumpet, and that really hadn't been heard previously in jazz. So that's that's one of the things that makes King Oliver um, very important to the music and to the progression of the music. Um, so that was a huge, huge, huge hit uh, at the time. Dipper Mouth Blues. That's the very first track that we heard, and um, it, it there was this you know solo that King Oliver took that you heard, and it almost sounds like some. Uh, like a almost like a female vocalist in the background going wah 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 and it, it just sounds like somebody moaning like a vocal moaning because you have all the the scoops and bends going down and you know it, it's it's this wonderful vocal like quality for a trumpet so that's what's really hip about it, you know, uh, and that's all King Oliver, and oh man, what a sound, right? So now in that band, he had um, a pianist, Lil Harden, you know, and there was a clarinetist uh, named Johnny Dodds, <coughs> and uh, Honoré Dutre was uh, the trombone player. And there was the second cornet, you know, uh, in that band as well, besides King Oliver, uh, a, a kid that uh, King Oliver used to play with down in New Orleans, and he called him up to Chicago to kind of, you know, be a part of the band. And that little kid's name was Louis Armstrong. Now, that kid did not play a solo. Louis did not play a solo on Dippermouth Blues, although... Although, asterisk time, <clears throat> a lot of folks wonder if it was actually Louis instead of King Oliver that wrote Dipper Mouth Blues. See, the credit goes to 
King Oliver for composing that blues. But what's interesting is that Louis Armstrong's nickname at that time was Little Dipper Mouth. I mean, later to graduate to Satchel Mouth and then finally to get his honors as Satchmo. Um, <clears throat> but I think it's interesting to point that people put, I mean, historically, you know, jazz historians have to kind of piece the pieces together. So they wonder if it was actually Louis who wrote that tune um, because it's called Dipper Mouth Blues as as opposed to say like blues by Dipper Mouth. Do you see what I'm saying? So people wonder if it was actually Louis who wrote that instead of King Oliver. So there's your question for the day. Um, but regardless, King Oliver absolutely blows his ass off on that solo. And there ain't no change in that because the proof's in, in the recording. Now, it should also be said that the following track that we heard, Chimes Blues, was actually Louis Armstrong's very first recorded solo. So what you heard was, right. I mean, obviously it's called Chimes Blues because the piano, Lil Hardin, was playing these chime-like fingers. Ding, 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 dong. Ding, 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 dong. Ding, ding, dong, dong. Like you would chimes, right? And... Uh, it was voiced in a way that sounds like chimes. So that was a cool musical effect as well. You know, they were really thinking outside the box for what they had to work with back then, you know. Um, but what was really neat about it is that once the ear gravitates to, at that point in time, going, hey, that's a pretty cool effect. That sounds like chimes, but it's a piano. Then Louis comes in with his solo. And what what's interesting is that I don't want to. I don't want to say it's like the explosion, right? Because I mean, this would be the shortest podcast episode ever, you know, for us. But what's interesting to point out is that you hear all the potential of an artistic statement, even in Lewis's first recorded solo. I mean, all those chromatic notes and hitting all the right color notes and, and you know, in, in that blues. Louis is truly playing with time. He's playing with chromatics. He's hitting all the right shaded notes. It, it's beautiful. And, and it's, it's really a stroke of genius because... You're going to hear throughout the rest of this podcast many other uh, musics. And, and, and don't get me wrong, not all of them are bad. Uh, I didn't potentially program this to be a bad episode. There are sparks of great creative geniuses uh, at work and later will flourish. And we'll talk about those as we go too. But it, it's worth noting that just from the get-go of recorded solos, Lewis has it nailed down. Like he's already developing something. Like you can tell right away that's not King Oliver. Not that cornet. But that cornet on Chimes Blues, that young kid, that young Louis, that that kid's got potential. That kid's gonna be going somewhere. And furthermore, it makes you want to listen to more, if you're especially at that time, can and buy more King Oliver records for the Creole Jazz Band because what else is Louis going to do? 
what else can he say in a solo? What other effects is King Oliver going to use for his trumpet, right? What other effects are they going to use? Are they going to make a piano sound like a chime again? Like, what else can they make the piano sound like? You see what I'm saying? So it's that market draw. You know what I mean? So King Oliver was a great... Um, he, he had a great kind of gimmick, if you will. And I don't mean that in a bad sense. Let me just say that, all right? Like, he had a good angle. And he had a really good band. So that... That right there is one of the high points of recorded jazz in 1923. Now, that being said, getting into our next segment, it wasn't like Bessie Smith was the only vocalist, King Oliver and this young Louis Armstrong was the only soloist, and everybody else, you know, just fell to the wayside. Oh, no, 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 no. There were plenty of great, great soloists. So what we're going to do is I'm going to give you three tracks in this next set, and it's going to feature um, two really great soloists that were not brass players. Because right now, what we've talked about is predominantly vocalists in Bessie Smith and brass players, specifically cornet players in King Oliver and Louis Armstrong. But... This was not brass players who ruled the roost. There were some really killing reed players, and that's what you're going to hear next.
So we had a three-part woodwind feature. There you go. Uh, specifically featuring two uh, great, great, great clarinetists at that time. So we started off the set with uh, Wildcat Blues, which uh, was by Clarence Williams. You remember? Keeping everything connected here. He was the same piano player that was backing Bessie Smith with Taint Nobody's Business If I Do, right? Well, Clarence had plenty of success, not only as a composer, uh, but also a publisher, and uh, led many different bands uh, with many, many future stars in the history of jazz. And this recording was no different. This was Clarence Williams' Blue Five, 
uh, recording Wildcat Blues in July 1923. And it featured uh, none other than the great Sidney Bechet. And Wildcat Blues was such a feature for Sidney Bechet that he recorded it and re-recorded it many, many times throughout his very storied career. And um, furthermore, Sidney Bechet came from New Orleans, just like King Oliver, just like Louis Armstrong. And uh, in fact, there were a few records by later on you know, a few years later by Clarence Williams, Blue Five, that would combine both Sidney Bechet and Louis Armstrong in the same group. And uh, I really think in my heart of hearts, I mean, and I'm biased, don't get me wrong, I, I absolutely adore Louis Armstrong. In fact, he's the whole impetus behind this podcast. But I do think, and I think it's fair to say, that Sidney Bechet was the only other musician at that particular point in time when they were first trying to reach jazz stardom, so to speak, that could give Lewis a run for his money talent-wise. Because I do believe that Sidney Bechet was a genius and probably got a bad rep because of um, his attitude and, um, w- and we could talk about that a little bit more, <laughs> but, um, I-, I don't want to eclipse the second track that we just heard in that, in that set, which was play that thing. And it was, uh, no, probably, you know, I don't know this documented for sure, but my guess is seeing the proximity that, Play That Thing that was in the middle of that set was recorded in September of 23 where Dipper Mouth Blues was recorded just a few months prior in April of 1923 by King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band. Now, if you'll remember, at the end of King Oliver's wah-wah solo on the cornet, you heard somebody on the record go, oh, play that thing. And there's no doubt that somebody says, well, why don't we call this tune Play That Thing? Probably just how it happened, you know. Uh, But Play That Thing was recorded by Ollie Powers' Harmony Syncopators because they liked to really cram as many words as possible for a band name back then. But Ollie Powers' Harmony Syncopators featured the great clarinetist Jimmy Noon. Now, Jimmy Noon uh, recorded plenty with like Kid Ory and he was a force in his own right. Uh, he recorded with Freddie Keppard. But what's really important to know is that Jimmy Noon went to Chicago, just like King Oliver did, taking that New Orleans sound of that New Orleans style jazz, bringing it up to Chicago, right, to expand it. And a young, 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 little itty bitty kid at the time heard records of Jimmy Noon and then went uh, as he got into high school, you know, maybe, you know, junior high, <clears throat> went to go hear, kind of snuck out at night, went to go hear Jimmy Noon and, and to play and, and was like completely dumbfounded, you know what I mean? Uh, because he was playing that exact same clarinet 
that exact same instrument, the clarinet, that Jimmy Noon was playing. But he didn't sound like Jimmy Noon. And he wanted to make sure that he was able to sound as good as Jimmy Noon one day if he practiced hard enough. And that kid, no doubt, was Benny Goodman. The quote-unquote king of swing. And it's no doubt piecing the two together, really, that when you emulate and you put genius on the correct pedestal that it deserves to be on, like Jimmy Noon, that it just seems like a no-brainer that it would be Benny's band that integrated black and white musicians together. Because when he wanted to grow up, he wanted to be as good as Jimmy Noon, who was a black clarinetist. Right? So you want the best of the best. You don't want a band of the best white cats you can find, right? So, you know, let's give credit where credit's due. Jimmy Noon is an incredible musician. Um, and he, 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 his presence and his talent, you know, gave inspiration to Benny Goodman, who did great things. Many great things in, in jazz. So there you have it. Um, and then we ended the set with uh, Down on the Levee Blues, which was by Rosetta Crawford. And you're like, who? What? Huh? Right? Yep. But Down on the Levee Blues was recorded in October 1923. And Rosetta Crawford was backed by the, uh, at least according to the OK record label, the King Bechet Trio. <laughs> Yeah, so it was no longer just Sidney Bechet; it was King Bechet. Because apparently, if you're New Orleans, if you if you're a New Orleans jazz musician who is making records, and you got to be king, so we got King Armstrong, King Oliver, you know, King Bechet, King Ori, you know, what I mean, the whole nine yards, right? So, uh, King Dodds. There you go. Um, but yeah, it was interesting to see that on on the actual OK label. But <clears throat> even though we bookended with two bechets that 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 deep vibrato that deep sound getting back all the way to sydney bechet it, it's it's unmistakable it, it's as just as clear cut you could hear two to three seconds of sydney bechet holding a note and it's just as easily and quickly identifiable as two to three seconds of miles davis holding a harmon mute no you just know it's him Right. To put it in context. Right. Um, and it's the same deal with Sidney Bechet. And now, like I said, we were going to get into before Sidney Bechet probably shot himself in the foot. Not literally, although he could have uh, due to his attitude. And I think that, you know, if he was as agreeable and jolly as Louis Armstrong was, then maybe I mean, overall, th then maybe he would have, have gotten more credit or gotten more of his dues, you know. But, you know, there's a story about Sidney Bechet saying, like, he was on a recording session, and somebody said, well, hey, Sidney, I think you missed that chord there. You know what I mean? And this is the piano player, and Sidney Bechet says, Sidney Bechet doesn't miss chord changes. You know, because most sane people, you know, use their, their name in the third person. But still, he sat there, and he's like, well, no, Sidney, I mean, you just missed this chord. And he's like, I said... Sidney Bechet doesn't miss chord changes. 
And so he challenged this guy to a duel. He was like in he was in France. I think he was in Paris at that point in time. Now most people, if you're going to be an American overseas challenging some dude to a duel, you'd think you want it like as as late as possible at night. Not Sidney Bechet. He wants to duel with this dude at high noon. You know, talk about Wild Wild West, right? Wild Wild Europe. So he go he goes at noon in this very populated square in in France. And the guy's trying to talk him down. Sydney, listen, man, I'm sorry. You know what I mean? You're right. You didn't miss the court change. You know what I mean? No, no. I mean, you know, it's it's all good. Like, we don't need to resort to violence. And he's like, take your gun and take ten steps. So, I mean, he's literally, he, he is not, not going to have a duel that day. So he turns around, he shoots, and luckily he misses the guy. Nobody dies. But... This poor lady was a innocent bystander gets hit in the leg with a bullet from this American, so he gets thrown in jail. And over what? Pride. That's what. He didn't want to miss that court change because Cindy Bechet didn't miss court changes. But thank God he's he missed. He he's not a good marksman. You know what I mean? So, uh, yeah. I mean, there's others. There's I mean, there's hundreds of Cindy Bechet stories. It's like the one, and I'll tell one more quick one. It's like the story where he goes and he's like, you know, I think it was off the Ken Burns thing that I heard this one. He sits there and he talks about, you know, um, he knocks on this dude's door at like two in the morning. He's like, uh, Sydney, what the hell, man? It's like two in the morning. He's like, I heard your dog was more dog than my dog. And I've got my dog right here under my arm and I want to see your dog right now because I want to make sure that my dog is more dog than your dog. <laughs> And if that were a story today, he'd be like, what up, dog? <laughs> so that's just the kind of guy that he was. I mean, he's crazy. But that same passion is what you hear in the music. That same dedication to his craft. You have, I mean, there's madness in the great winds, right? So you have to know that, that same, he's coming from that exact same place with those stories into the music because that's what he loves the most and there's no denying that so there you go uh and that's why Sidney Bechet is super important <clears throat> now and he is definitively one of those sparks uh in the 1920s recorded history uh leading up to the explosion the artistic explosion that is about to happen you know um now we actually have <clears throat> two more recordings uh, left for 1923. And speaking of sparks of creativity, you know what I mean, before the whole explosion, this is a big spark, what we're about to hear. And I'm going to talk about it on the break, but this is a huge song. See if you can figure it out before I tell you what it is. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Dr. Jazz Podcast. <laughs>
So that last track was Someday Sweetheart, which was a, uh, a jazz standard. Uh, and it continued to be a jazz standard uh, throughout the swing era. And even if you go and you listen to some trad uh, jazz bands down in New Orleans, even today, you'll still hear a lot of cats play Someday Sweetheart. Now, that was recorded in December of 1923 by uh, violinist Eddie South. And uh, Eddie South was... Um, known as the Dark Angel of the Fiddle. Um, not my words, but that's, you know, the, the time period back then. But um, he really preceded um, so many great jazz violin players like Stuff Smith and Stefan Grappelli and Joe Venuti, even by a few years. Um, he did get to actually play with uh, Django Reinhardt for a little bit um, in for a few uh, sessions, even in the 30s. Um, I don't think that you should overlook Eddie South, and, and sadly, I think he is one of those unsung heroes that does not get enough uh, press or do. But um, you're hearing it here on the Dr. Jazz podcast, so there you have it. <coughs> uh, now, some people say, since we're, we're talking about figures of this era, uh, even though it's disputed among many, many, many things, um, that the actual composer to Someday Sweetheart was actually Jelly Roll Morton. He claims that he wrote that song. Of course, he also claims that he wrote Tiger Rag, too, as uh, an early quadrille way back in the day. So, I mean, you know, depends on what uh, side of that camp that y you kind of want to fall in, you know. Gunther Schuller has a lot of great arguments to uh, actually attest to the fact that Jelly Roll Morton could not be denied that he invented jazz music since he was the very first one to actually like put it on paper. And that is actually not Buddy Bolden. That Buddy Bolden was actually playing ragtime on an instrument, whereas, like a horn, whereas Jelly Roll Morton was actually playing jazz. So, I don't know. That debate will continue to rage on. But uh, before that, we heard Charleston, which was written by Harlem Stride Master and the father of Str Harlem Stride Piano, James P. Johnson. And it comes from a piano roll, and James P. Johnson actually uh, crafted many of those piano rolls back in the, the early days. But this was a brand new hit uh, that was recorded in October 1923. Now, the Charleston became a defining record for the Roaring Twenties. It became a dance that everybody did, and on top of that, it, it made its way throughout the history of the music. It, it was very synonymous with the Roaring Twenties, with flapper girls, with speakeasies, uh, it was the dance to do, and on top of all that, you find people doing the Charleston all throughout movies, motion pictures. If you go to It's a Wonderful Life with uh, Donna Reed and uh, Jimmy Stewart, there's a scene, a dance scene, where they're doing the Charleston. If you go and you look at films like The Great Gatsby and, and all those retro films, right? 
then you'll see them doing this dance, and that's the Charleston. And, I mean, that's the thing. It actually came from the pen of James P. Johnson, who is a jazz pianist, a Harlem jazz stride pianist. So, I mean, we could take a real deep dive into James P. Johnson, and I might do that for a future episode, you know, because talk about people who are, are really unsung. You know, he was known as the invisible pianist because he... He, he was a, an, an immense composer, uh, an incredible piano player. Uh, he was a great teacher and, and, and a great sideman, too, um, for loads of sessions. So, yeah, I mean, that, that might be a good deep dive, too, is to just uh, pay a spotlight to good old James P. Johnson. Um, but, yeah, so the Charleston was a defining... I mean, you, you I mentioned that there were sparks of immense creativity before uh, the explosion of Louis Armstrong's Hot Five. And this is, right here, a big one. Because, like I said, the Charleston was such an era-defining song. I mean, very rarely do you have an entire era that is defined in one song. Right? And the Charleston, by all means, is. And what's interesting is that James P. Johnson actually got the inspiration for the melody of the Charleston while he was in South Carolina, and he would listen to the um, the, the dock workers sing songs to pass the time. And, you know, it being a port city, right, like New Orleans, lots of, of immigrants, lots of international things going on, and these workers were not singing, you know, typical, you know, four to the floor, four beat songs. They had uh, some, a lilt, if you will, a groove, a syncopation. And that I mean, that sort of thing was just going on, and, and, and he took it and went to the piano with it and crafted it into the song that an entire generation knew. So there you go. Um, yeah, so once again, PSA time. If you are interested in any of these albums, uh, any of these songs, these artists, we have all that information uh, episode by episode on our website, which is Dr. Jazz Podcast, Dr. J-A-Z-Z-Podcast.wordpress.com. Feel free to check it out. Drop us a line and a note. Tell us that you like an episode or uh, hate an episode, or if you have any ideas for a new episode, we'd love to hear from you. Also, you can write a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear that. And you can hit like if you want to do that, or write a comment on SoundCloud, which is two places you can find the Dr. Jazz Podcast, as well as Stitcher. And uh, feel free to share with your friends. So there you go. All right. So we're turning the page from 1923 into 1924. A huge point in time. At this point in time, uh, we are, we have a new American president because Warren G. Harding died of what was probably, I think, congestive heart failure in August of 1923. And his vice president at the time, Calvin Coolidge, uh, who wanted to keep the status quo 
maintain the status quo in America was president. And he did not like to have regulations on anything. And so everything was booming. It was full-blown, roaring 20s. And that would continue on uh, through until Herbert Hoover became president in the late 20s. And then he kind of crashed it. But that's another story for another day. But so we've had a president who died in office. And when he was out, I believe, in like California or Alaska or something like that. And... The vice president is sworn in. He's Calvin Coolidge. So it's a brand new time for America. It's like, well, we've got a new president. It's a new era. You know what I mean? Like, things are all hopping and bopping. You know, I've already talked about how this America has turned the page on the Spanish influenza. Now we're in the Roaring Twenties. We have the Charleston. We have dances. You know, girls are getting shorter haircuts. You know, little bob cuts. Flapper dresses, etc., speakeasies because we're still in prohibition, and this kind of paints the picture of what American music was going was like at that point in time. So we're turning the page into 1924, and we've got a couple of songs lined up here, and a couple of stories uh, to get you going. But first, we're going to start out with a very important uh, New Orleans trumpet player who moved up to Chicago. And uh, was very important to the history of the music. And um, we're going to talk about that on the next break. But here is the great Freddie Keppard.
songs there and uh, two important figures too so quickly that last track was Salty Dog Blues which you may have heard other people hundreds of people have covered Salty Dog or Salty Dog Blues whichever one you won't call it and that was actually by the guy who probably wrote it and you've probably never heard of him but he's a banjo player um, who also played guitar and ukulele uh, and it was a banjo guitar, actually. And his name is Papa Charlie Jackson. And he was born in 1887 in New Orleans, Louisiana. And he's kind of one of those dudes that kind of fill in the cracks because he's, he's often overlooked by blues historians. And he's sometimes too bluesy to really be considered jazz. So he's often overlooked by jazz historians as well. Um, <clears throat> so, there you go. Uh, his real name is William Henry Jackson. And, uh, 
he started off his career by playing in minstrel shows and medicine shows. And uh, he was part of that great migration from New Orleans to Chicago, like we were talking about with, with King Oliver and Jimmy Noon and all that before, right? Um, he is actually um, the very first self-accompanied blues musician to make records. So before, like, Charlie Patton, before... Uh, Blind Lemon Jefferson, before Robert Johnson, there was Papa Charlie Jackson. And uh, he's also one of the first musicians of what they call the hokum genre of music. Now, what is hokum? Well, that's the kind of music uh, that was often bluesy, uh, but also uses comedic lines, you know what I mean? Uh, and, and, and sometimes, you know, falling under the umbrella of hokum music, there's usually um, sexually suggestive lyrics, and, you know, we call those blue lyrics, if you will. Um, and usually there's a lot of rhythm to these songs. So um, he was he either wrote or was the very first to record several songs that became standards, like Salty Dog uh, uh, and All I Want is a Spoonful. So there you go. But... Uh, he also recorded uh, Shake That Thing. Uh, and <laughs> so many people have covered Shake That Thing. So there you go. Um, but w w what's really interesting is that this was recorded in January of 1924. Crazy. But January of 1924. And he, he played with everybody. He played with Ma Rainey. He played with Blind Blake, Ida Cox, Hattie McDaniel, uh, Johnny Dodds, who was on those King Oliver sides. He was the clarinet player on those King Oliver sides with an early Louis Armstrong, right? And don't forget that name, Johnny Dodds. Super important. Right. But he also played with Freddie Kepard, who is an, an immense, uh, important figure in the whole history of New Orleans musicians going up to Chicago. And Freddie Kepard is actually who we heard from first in that set. So we heard Moanful Man by Cook's Dreamland Orchestra, recorded in January 1924 as well. And that featured... Freddie Capard on the cornet and Jimmy Noon on the clarinet, as well as um, Joe Poston on the alto sax, Jerome Pasquale on the tenor sax, uh, Jimmy Bell on the violin, Antonio Spaulding on the piano, Stan Wilson on the banjo, Bill Newton on the tuba, and Burt Green on the drums. And it was uh, recorded for the Jeanette Records in Richmond, Indiana. January 21st, 1924, and you just hear these awesome, bluesy, moanful sounds, not only from Freddie Kepard, but also from Jimmy Noon. Now, here's the thing to understand about Freddie Kepard. Freddie Kepard had the opportunity to be the very first recorded jazz artist, to record the very first jazz record. He turned it down. The reason he turned it down was because he was so petrified that people were going to listen to those records and copy his licks. That there would be hundreds of Freddie Capard 
copycats out there. Well, he wasn't wrong. I mean, you think about how many jazz musicians copy Charlie Parker licks, Miles Davis licks, you know, uh, you know, uh, certain uh piano figures from like Earl Hines, right? I mean, come on. Um he wasn't wrong, but th- there was no stopping it. You know what I mean? And and it got to the point where he finally he he said, "No, I'm not going to do it." And that opened the door for the original Dixieland Jazz Band, an all white jazz group to become the very first to record the very first jazz record in 1917. But it could have been Freddie Capard. So finally, he, he, he realized that, you know, the writing's on the wall. There's no fighting this. I'm never going to be remembered if I don't record. So he, he, he decided to record. And lucky for us, we have a document, because he changed his mind, of the way that Freddie Capard played. You know, we don't have documentation of the way that Buddy Bolden played. So, uh, but when he started to record, rumor has it that Freddie Kepar would wind up putting a handkerchief over his fingers on his trumpet or his cornet so that people still couldn't see the fingerings he was using. <laughs> Paranoid much, right? So... You know, a good thing he didn't play trombone. He would have just been, you know, completely shit out of luck. But um, that's, you know, that that's kind of the, the deal with Freddie Capard. But he is so important because this is the, the lineage. I mean, you literally go from King, um, uh, you go from Buddy Bolden to Bunk Johnson to Freddie Capard to King Oliver to Louis Armstrong. That's the lineage. <clears throat> so... I think that's important to realize as we're talking about, you know, this whole thing, chronologically speaking, the moment before the explosion, which is our, you know, focus on this episode of the podcast. So, um, but more than anything, hopefully you're starting to get a realization of just how much blues and jazz there is out there with little sparks of, of great creativity from Sidney Bechet and Clarence Williams and Bessie Smith and James P. Johnson, but there's nothing that's really super duper explosive, you know. Um, the closest thing that we've probably came to super explosive so far was either King Oliver's use of mutes and the Wawa effects. Louis Armstrong having great potential from his very first recorded solo from Chimes Blues. Uh, Sidney Bechet's very distinctive tone and um, approach to improvisation on the clarinet. And James B. Johnson's Charleston composition. But Freddie Keppard, without a doubt, is an immense stylist and and a great soloist. So there you go. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed those tracks. Now, we we have covered a, a lot of, of ground, but there is other stuff that's out there. You know, I'm not just going to give you all good stuff. <laughs> I'm trying to show you a, a, an overall picture, you know what I mean? Um, I mean, it's all good. I take that back. It's all good, but not all of it's going to be stellarly great, okay? Um, there are some 
catchier tunes, and there are tunes by groups that have artists that are are yet to become full blossomed influential figures. Let's put it that way. Okay, so we've got uh, a long stretch coming up here, and um, it's going to be full, chock full of goodies, uh, and interesting selections as well. So don't go anywhere. You are listening to the Doctor Jazz Podcast. <laughs> Thank you. 
Alrighty. So, three really interesting tracks right there, right? So, um, we started off the set with a track called It's the Blues. <laughs> uh, by the Gene Golkett Orchestra. Uh, recorded in on March 27th, 1924. Um, and it, we, well, in that group, we heard uh, Fred Fuzzy Farrar, Ray Lodwig, and Tex Brewster on the trumpets, Bill Rank, and none other than Tommy Dorsey on the trombone, Stanley Doc Riker, and Jimmy Dorsey on clarinets and alto saxophones, Don Murray on the clarinet and tenor saxophone, the great Joe Venuti, who I just mentioned earlier, on violin, Dewey Bergman and Paul Mertz on pianos, Howard Howdy Quicksell on the banjo, Irish Henry on the bass, and Charles Horvath on the drums. Now, it's worth noting that the Gene Golkett Orchestra uh, was eventually going to be home for, for many uh, up-and-coming jazz stars, uh, including Artie Shaw later on, um, Frankie Trumbauer, Eddie Lang, Bill Chalice as an arranger, um, as well as uh, a trumpet player named Bix Piderbeck. Now, that particular track didn't have Bix, but that is worth noting that all those came, th all those stars came through the Gene Golkett Orchestra. It was kind of like a stomping ground or a launching pad, if you will, uh, for a lot of the great white jazz stars of that era and into the swing era. Now, after that, we heard a track called Mamanita which is a solo piano piece recorded in April of 1924 by none other than the great Jelly Roll Morton, who was not only playing it, but he wrote it. And if it sounds out of character from most of the other music that you've heard, well, you're on to something. Because that kind of habanera rhythm mixed with um, the ragtime syncopations and other, I mean, not, not it's, it's not exactly ragtime, it's ragtime-esque, but that was kind of like the early stages of jazz syncopations. Um, that's Jelly Roll. He said that all authentic jazz had to have a quote-unquote Spanish tinge to it. And that if you were playing real jazz, you were playing Jelly Roll. And if you were playing real jazz, it had to have that Spanish tinge. So, um, there's quite a host of tunes that he wrote with that kind of flavor. Uh, Creepy Feeling, Mamanita that we just heard, of course. Uh, the Crave is a very popular one. Um, but they're fantastic little uh, pieces, you know what I mean? And he didn't just make it up off the top of his he head. There were actual improvisation sections uh, in all of these, but they were through composed pieces uh, with like A, B, and C sections, you know. But it should be worth noting that 
Jelly Roll's importance is that he actually put everything to paper so that it could be recreated. And, of course, he is infamously known as the guy who said that he himself invented jazz music. So there you go. Uh, if you want more information and an in-depth, deeper dive just on Jelly Roll Morton, we already have an episode of the Dr. Jazz Podcast completely dedicated to the legend and the stories of Jelly Roll Morton. Check that out. Um, but be forewarned, there's a lot of blue language in that one. Um, and then we started, uh, no, and then the last song in that three-song set was Riverboat Shuffle by none other than Bix Beiderbeck, recorded in May of 1924. Now, the important thing to note here is that um, two things. One, Hoagie Carmichael, the same composer who wrote George on my mind the same composer who wrote stardust right and many many hosts of other great songs wrote riverboat shuffle he originally wanted to call the tune freewheeling but bix and the rest of the guys in the band said no 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 that that sounds dumb we know that you wrote this and it's an awesome song but no that title is dumb so we're going to call it Riverboat Shuffle. <laughs> and Hoagie was going, like, eh, eh. <laughs> So, um, you know, Hoagie Carmichael was, was really good friends with Bix. And Bix, besides being an incredible uh, cornetist, which you really got to hear on that track, and we're going to talk about that in just a second, he was a great pianist as well. And he would write these very forward, modernistic piano pieces later on um, like in a mist and what you hear with Bix in this track with his cornet solo is very similar to Louis Armstrong's solo on Chimes Blues it's not this watershed moment yet but it's super important because you can pinpoint a great deal of potential yet to come. This is before he got together with Frankie Trembauer and created the, the infamous record Singing the Blues with both of them having just outstanding lyrical solos. <coughs> of course, Bix was incredibly uh, inspired by Louis Armstrong and he heard Louis on those riverboats as they came and gone and he would take his uh, cornet and he would practice and play along over the water to what he heard it was kind of like a uh, an aquatic version of an Abersol play along if you will uh, <laughs> uh, but he, he loved Louis and Louis loved Bix you know that's the thing is that they actually got together and they would jam you know which was looked down upon you know what I mean, in a lot of circles, because it was a black musician and a white musician. And, you know, Bix came from uh, Davenport, Iowa. I mean, that's as corn-fed Iowa as you can get right there. Uh, and his father absolutely detested the idea that his son would be a musician out of all things. You know what I mean? So, basically, he he would skip school, and he'd try to play, and he'd try to jam, and he'd try to, you know, he, he, was, a, he was a hellion. And... 
Uh, so Sather sent him to boarding school in Chicago. Well, that was the worst thing that he could do because he absolutely skipped the boarding school, you know, uh, to, to go <laughs> and find all the jazz music. That, I mean, he basically sent him to the hotbed of jazz, you know. Uh, so, and the rest is history, you know what I mean? And And you can hear just in that solo all those influences, and yet... It's totally different. It's a cool style of trumpet playing. You know what I mean? It, it's, it, it presages what happened with Miles. It, it's, it's previous to what happened with Chet Baker. But it's this lyrical kind of cornet solo. And he's taken all these great liberties. There's a point in time where he goes, he's like, Papa do ba do ba ba do You know, he just holds this note out like time and space just paused for a minute. And then he goes right back into it, you know. So, super, super potential to come. Uh, and that, both of those, actually, uh, Jelly Roll Morton and Big Spider Beck, were two very important important flashes, uh, sparks of creativity that we've talked about previously in this, you know, a, this uh, explosion that was about to happen in real artistry and real you know just the awesomeness that was about to come because basically when when the hot fives came with Louis Armstrong it, it was it was like the sonic boom i mean everybody was in its path and everybody was affected one way or the other and it raised the bar for so many of these uh cats that we've heard of to to, to really dig deeper and to record even better things. So Bix said, okay, well, you know, my strong point is lyricism. So I'm going to, you know, continue to make lyrical solos, but I'm going to even make them more lyrical. And, and that's, we're the beneficiaries as jazz listeners, because later on down the line, there was singing the blues with uh, Frankie Trembauer. And there was his solos with the Paul Whiteman orchestra. And then with Jelly Roll, there was the, the, you know, the Red Hot Peppers and all of those sides. And um, he dug it, dug in even further. And James P. Johnson, you know, dug in further. And, you know, and all these guys, Sidney Bechet, there you go. Um, yeah. And, in fact, uh, James P. Johnson, you know, the father of Harlem Stride Piano, he took on... A, a young student and, and taught him very, 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 very well. And that's who we're going to hear from next is actually his former student uh, in one of his earliest recordings. But I'm not going to tell you just who that is yet. You're going to have to keep listening. You're listening to the Dodger Jazz Podcast. Stay tuned. <laughs> Thank you. 
So that last track was a tune called Battleship Kate, and it was by Wilbur Sweatman's Brownies, recorded in October 1924. Now, Wilbur Sweatman was the clarinetist that you heard on that track. Um, And if it sounds kind of hokey, you're probably not too far from the truth. You see, Wilbur Sweatman was actually born in February, so early, 1882. That's right, 1882. Uh, By the time he was a teenager, he was already going on tour with circus bands. First with Professor Clark Smith's Piccaninny Band from Kansas City, and then with the P.G. Lowry Band. And then by 1901, Wilbur Sweatman had actually become the youngest orchestra leader in America by fronting the Four Paw and Sells Circus Band. He also played briefly with the bands of W.C. Handy and Mahara's Minstrels before organizing his own dance band in Minneapolis by late 1902. So he did all of that in about two years' span. <laughs> um... And there, he made his first recordings as The Cylinders in 1903 for the Metropolitan Music Store. Uh, And in those recorded cylinders, uh, it is reputed that he may have been the first recorded version of Scott Joplin's Maple Leaf Rag. But no one knows for sure because there's no copies to be found. So it's all just kind of, you know... rumors (laughs) rumors <laughs> um, <clears throat> but uh, he, he did the vaudeville circuit for a very long time and, and you know but to kind of put a cap and a button on this um, his style of jazz kind of uh, ran its course you know what I mean uh, but he continued to play shows at, at Connie's Inn through the 40s in New York um, but several notable musicians actually went through his band uh, that included drummer Cozy Cole, saxophonist Coleman Hawkins, and legendary composer Duke Ellington. That's right. So, he, his, he, 
the idea of him being out of the canon of jazz history is is a non-starter because he is important. So, and you heard his uh, track "Battleship Kate" uh, by the Wilbur Sweatman's Brownies. Now, before that, we heard from legendary vocalist Ethel Waters, who was famously quoted as saying that she's the mother of us all, talking about female jazz vocalists. Um, And we heard her sing Pleasure Mad. Now, if you're a fan of older jazz, uh, that may have sound somewhat familiar, but you couldn't put your finger on it. Well, that's because you probably know it as Viper Mad. And she recorded it in August of 1924. But what's interesting to note is that Viper Mad, a.k.a. Pleasure Mad, was written by uh, Sidney Bechet. And um, apparently, when it was written, uh, a lot of companies, recording companies, did not want it projected out there, um, you know, glamorized a song about marijuana reefer vipers right because vipers were people who smoked marijuana so so basically you know ethel ethel waters was the the good girl you know who made a whole shit ton of recordings and she was not like bessie smith who is like a much more bombastic bluesy wailing kind of a vocalist who was not afraid to do sexually suggestive songs like Put a Little Sugar in My Bowl, Taint Nobody's Business If I Do, Take Me on a Buggy Ride, You know, my, You Make My Love Come Down. You get the idea. Well, Ethel would never sing stuff like that. She, she might have a, 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 a song that would have a splash or a sprinkle of innuendo, like He's My Handyman, you know, <laughs> just so you know. Um, so she said, sure, I'll sing Pleasure, Matt. But here's the backlash. Here's the crazy part. This is the Roaring Twenties, y'all. So in what crazy world do you think that not singing about marijuana was okay, but you're going to sing about being pleasure mad? So, yeah, suggestive, sexually charged lyrics like pleasure mad, not having a good time, like, hey, let's all go out and have a good time. No, 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 nay, nay. They're talking, people took that as sexual. So whether she liked it or not, good girl Ethel Waters wound up having a hit with pleasure mad because they were like, hey, we can't smoke weed, but let's have a lot of sex. So that... (laughs) So that's what was kind of the funny part about this, right? And why, there you go. But eventually, they caved, the record companies, that is, and it became Viper Mad all over again. And there was uh, a fantastic recording uh, of that uh, with Sidney Bechet playing it. And um, who was the vocalist? O'Neill Spencer, that's who it was, yeah. O'Neill Spencer actually sang the lyrics, which is like, you know, wrap your chops round this stick of tea, blow this gate, and come get high with me, right? And I mean, 
So, and that's the version that you hear on most Sidney Bechet compilations. Both are great, but I just think it's it's kind of funny when the you know the lady who's trying to be good girl actually <laughs> underhandedly <laughs> has a sexually charged song. So there you go. Uh, and then we started off the set with West Indies Blues by the Jamaica Jazzers, recorded in May 1924. And I said before this set began that the piano player for the Jamaica Jazzers was actually uh, a young protege and student of the great James P. Johnson. And that would be none other than the great Fats Waller. That's right. Fats Waller was part of the Jamaica Jazzers that recorded West Indies Blues for that that first song in the set that you just heard. Now, he was such a quick study, and he learned so quickly that there was a point in time that he was the youngest, and Willie the Lion Smith said, Jimmy, I think the boys got it. I think we're in trouble. I think we're a trio. Because <laughs> if you've ever heard Willie the Lion speak, it, it's kind of like listening to Groucho Marx talk. But... What was interesting is that probably out of the three of them, who were known as the the three gods of the Harlem stride piano, being James B. Johnson, Willie the Lion Smith, and Fats Waller, Fats probably had the most success as being an entertainer and and, and an incredible composer. I mean, talk about that kid's got potential. Yeah, that kid's got potential. He's about to write Ain't Misbehavin'. Uh, I got a feeling I'm falling. Honeysuckle Rose. I mean, all these great tunes. I mean, there's literally hundreds. And in fact, Louis Armstrong later on for Columbia Records would dedicate an entire album to the music of Fats Waller because he's that important. You know, and, and oh, just tons of great songs. Um, the joint is jumping. That's another good one. Blue turning gray over you. Black and blue with such a, a racially charged song. That's an important song. I mean, yeah, tons of great compositions. So we, we talk about th- throughout this podcast major sparks of creativity that eventually ignite the explosion of sonic artistry to come, right? That's Waller. Is one of them. Now, you didn't really hear a lot of that in that track, but he's out there, he's recording, he's making a name for himself, and he's studying at the feet of one of the greatest, if not the greatest, Harlem Stride pianist at the time, James P. Johnson, who just wrote a year before the era-defining song in Charleston. So put all that together, and that's why you have great potential for Fats Waller in about just a few years. So that's the set there. All right. Now, this next set uh, has got quite an interesting uh, pairing. So just kind of go with it. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you're enjoying this podcast. If you need to pause and take a bathroom break or grab yourself another drink, coffee, snack, whatever, do so. But make sure you come back because we've got some awesome stuff planned for you. You're listening to the Dr. Jazz Podcast. Thank you. 
long pole, he never pays no heed. I feel a fire neath his tail, and then he shows some speed. Go along, you, don't you roll him eyes. You can change the fool, but a dog or mule is a mule until he dies. Go along, you, don't you roll him eyes. You can change the fool, but a dog or mule is a mule until he dies. <laughs>
So that last track was none other than Drunk Men's Strut. That's right. Even from the earliest days, uh, jazz is promoting all the risky things in life. Um, that's by none other than clarinet great Jimmy O'Brien, uh, along with Jimmy Blythe and Jasper Taylor. It was recorded in November 1924 which is a really fertile period for a lot of recorded jazz. Um, Jimmy O'Brien was born around 1896 in either Arkansas or Kentucky, uh, and he was a jazz clarinetist that was often compared to the great Johnny Dodds. We mentioned that name before. Uh, He also played with King Oliver. Uh, But Jimmy O'Brien played with the Tennessee Ten in 1920 and in 1921, uh, and then in 1923, he played with both Jelly Roll Morton, who we already talked about, and W.C. Handy, known as the father of the blues. Uh, in 1924, he played with King Oliver. And uh, from 1923 through 1926, uh, he c- recorded a great deal with Lovey Austin's Blues Serenaders. And he also did session with his own washboard band, uh, and we kind of got to hear that and his clarinet stylings there. It's really featured in that track. Um, unfortunately, he died in the peak of his career in 1928 in Chicago. Um, and luckily for us, uh, who are curious and, and interested in these sort of things, um, all of his output was released on two compact discs, by RST Records in 2000 and 2001. So, if you want your own copy of Drunk Man Strut, you can get it that way. And uh, a good way to find that out is to go on our website so you know what to look for. Dr. Jazz Podcast, D-R-J-A-Z-Z Podcast.wordpress.com Also, before that, we heard from the great Ma Rainey. Now, I know that Ma Rainey is getting a lot of attention through the uh, fantastic performance by, by Viola Davis um, in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. So um, that, I understand. I completely understand that. Um, but here, here's what you might not realize is that Gertrude Ma Rainey <clears throat> was an influential blues singer dubbed the mother the mother of the blues and what it is is she kind of was the 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 middle figure between the vaudeville kind of circuit and like southern blues you know, she was born in Columbus, Georgia, right, in 1886. So, I mean, you think about that. 1886. That's just crazy. So, we're, we're she's hitting 40 by the time we heard her recording of C.C. Ryder that we did in the middle of that set. That was recorded in October of 1924. Uh, she, began, she began performing as a teenager, but only be, 
began to become known as Ma Rainey after her marriage to Will Rainey in 1904, who was called Pa Rainey, right? Uh, they toured with Rabbitfoot Minstrels and later formed their own group, Rainey and Rainey, Assassinators of the Blues. I kid you not. I kid you not, right? <clears throat> so her actual first record was made in 1923, the exact time period that we're talking about right here. So her first record was 1923, uh, and then she made over 100 recordings in, you know, in, in her whole time. Now, the focus of the film, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, that record wasn't made until 1927. So what we're talking about on this podcast is you know, three years before that, <laughs> just so you know. Okay. Um, now, in 1914... The Rainies were billed, I told you, as Rainy and Rainy, Assassinators of the Blues. And <laughs> it just sounds a lot more dramatic when you do it that way. Anyway, they were down in New Orleans uh, one winter, and they, they were kind of staying there for the winter uh, because it's a lot warmer in New Orleans. But while there, she met tons of musicians like King Oliver, a young, young, young Louis Armstrong young Sidney Bechet and bassist Pops Foster. And as the popularity of the blues increased in New Orleans, she became even more well-known, right? So around this time, she met a young girl who was a blues singer who was trying to make a name for herself. And that young girl was Bessie Smith. That's right soon to be the empress of the blues. So what's interesting is that Bessie Smith recorded with Louis Armstrong, but so did Ma Rainey. And that's the other thing I wanted to tell you is that the track you heard, C.C. Ryder, that featured a very young cornetist named Louis Armstrong. So in just that year, from April 1923, when Lewis was playing his very first recorded solo on Chimes Blues with King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band, you go and you fast forward, I take that back about a year and a half, right? To October 1924, he's guest starring on a cameo on a record with the mother of the blues herself, Ma Rainey, with C.C. Ryder. And it ain't going to stop there, just so you know. Um, before that, we started off the set with Go Long Mule by the Goofus Five. Kid you not, that's a real deal group. Can't make it up. The Goofus Five. It was recorded in New York City, October 24th, 1924 with Ernest Hare on the vocals, Bill Moore on the cornet, Bobby Davis on clarinet, soprano, and alto sax, Irving Brodsky on the piano, hey Brodsky, you know, Tommy Fellini on the banjo, no relation to the director, and Stan King on the drums and kazoo, but the biggest name on the session is the bass saxophonist, not the Barry, the bass 
saxophonist, the great Adrian Rollini. Yeah. That dude was amazing. He was a, an amazing bass saxophone player. He was an amazing vibraphonist. He was an amazing arranger. And he was all over some of the, the hottest white groups in that era of the day. He was part of the Goofus Five. He was part of the California Ramblers. The Golden Gate Orchestra, I believe was their name. Um, yeah. I mean, Adrian Rolini, man. That dude. Like, if you haven't checked out Adrian Rolini, check out some Adrian Rolini sides because they're just fantastic. But other notable names have come through the Goofus Five organization, if you will. Uh, Jimmy Dorsey, which we heard with the Gene Golcat Orchestra before. Uh, and Red Nichols. Red Nichols is uh, one of those unsung kind of, of, of cats. You know, it, it, time goes and people forget about Red Nichols. Uh, he had a group called Red Nichols and his Five Pennies. You know, there was a, a, um, a documentary, well, not a documentary, but a biopic, if you will, uh, on Red Nichols that starred Danny Kaye as Red Nichols. Uh with a, a feature, uh, a cameo feature in the film by the great Louis Armstrong, because he was a part of that same time period. And, you know, he got along great with Red Nichols. And he got along great with Bix. You know what I mean? I mean, there was this mutual thing like, hey, th this music is in its infancy, right? We should all get along instead of like trying to squabble with each other. So that was Louis's perspective. Um, but yeah. We heard the Goofus Five play Go Long, Mule. And what you heard, at least at the very start of that song, was these animal sound effects, right? And that's not a new thing. That's kind of part of that hokum thing that I was talking about with Papa Charlie Jackson, right? That idea that you can make your instrument, your horn, sound like a donkey, a mule, a horse whinny, uh, a chicken, a that sort of thing, you know? That actually goes back to the beginnings of recorded jazz, especially for white jazz musicians in this time period, because they were, I'm sure, had those records of the original Dixieland jazz band in their house all the way back six years ago, seven years ago, to 1917, to Livery Stable Blues, in which all those cats in the ODJB, were mimicking farm animals. So, as sad as it is, that's kind of the, the, the history. You can literally draw a line from point A to point B with those two. So, if you're wondering why in the world are they making like these mule horse whinny sounds and it's not sleigh ride, then that's why. It's because it's kind of like... A, as sad, kind of as sad as it is, that was the white tradition for jazz at the point in time. You know what I mean? Until Big Spiderbeck came along and goes, no, 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 no. That's not the way to do it. Here's the way to do it. You know? So, uh, and it's just re making really good music and not trying to be hokey. So, there you go. Anyway, we've got um, a few more songs left. Um, let's see. One, two, three. Yeah, we've got about two more quick sets uh, coming at you. So thank you so much for listening. Um, let's get to the music. Yeah, enough talking for me. Mm -hmm. 
come to it. Oh, that's a boy. All right. So <clears throat> we started off that set with a tune called Choo Choo. Gotta Hurry Home by the Washingtonians. Recorded in November 1924. And that group, the Washingtonians, actually features Sonny Greer on the drums, Fred Guy on the bass, Otto Hardwick on the clarinet and alto sax, Charlie Irvis on the trombone, the great Bubber Miley on the cornet, and the director and pianist of that group is none other than the great Duke Ellington. Yes, he came from Washington, D.C., and that's probably why they were called the Washingtonians. But two things of important note. I believe this is Duke Ellington's very first recorded record. I mean, out of the thousands of compositions and hundreds of recording dates, I believe this is the first. And it's also ironic, fitting, poetic, whatever you want to call it, that it's a it's an it's a thematic thing about a train. Now, I know that we just did a podcast on the importance and inspiration of trains and the railroad and jazz music. <clears throat> but and we talked about Duke Ellington a lot there. <clears throat> but you, you have to think that think about all the railroad-esque tunes Duke has had in his storied career. Build That Railroad with Al Hibbler on vocals, track 360 that actually has all the parts and the drums doing like the chugga chugga chugga. <clears throat> you also have uh, Happy Go Lucky Local, Daybreak Express, Across the Track Blues, and of course Duke Ellington's theme song written by Billy Strayhorn Take the A-Train. So there's all these train songs. It's only fitting, really, that his very first record would be a, th- a theme associated with trains. So, And if you'd like to find out more uh, songs that deal with jazz and trains, go back and listen to the last podcast. So, um, yeah, there you go. <clears throat> Before or After that, that was the first song of the set. The second song of the set is by none other than the great Benny Moten and his Kansas City Orchestra. We heard Goofy Dust. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, I mean, and that just goes to prove, you know, it, the Bill, the Benny Moten <clears throat> band is where none other than Count Basie got his start. So, even though he wasn't on that recording, it's still it, it, it's worth it to mention the fact that Duke Ellington and Count Basie, they're almost like you can't say one without the other as far as great band leaders go. And I don't know. I mean, obviously Duke Ellington had a little bit of a head start because I believe he was five years older than uh, Bill Basie. But still, um that doesn't take away from kind of our, our focus here in that <clears throat> you had two incredible bands, one with Benny Moten and that Kansas city style uh, of blues and jazz kind of mixed together. 
and that kind of rhythm. And then you also had Duke Ellington, who was already, you know, utilizing um, great soloists like Bubber Miley and that kind of growl trumpet thing that he brought. The, 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 well, it's a different kind of sensibility, really. If you stop and you think about um, the, the freak tactics, as I believe they were called, that King Oliver used in that he would have different mutes and different plungers for different wah-wah effects, that, even just within a year's time, is already, from those Creole jazz band recordings in 1923, is already getting utilized and uh, through the ears of Bubber Miley into a growl trumpet scenario. And that will be furthered on uh, through Cootie Williams and the Duke Ellington Orchestra as time presses on, you know. So it's interesting. These are more uh, cats that you can see, like, they got potential. They got real potential. So, um, and of course, if you're even a casual fan of jazz listening, then you know um, what potential was exactly reached by the great Duke Ellington and all of the compositions and bands and soloists uh, and great albums that came after this period in 1923, 1924. And furthermore, um, how Bill Basie took over the Benny Moten band after Benny Moten passed away. And then you, you, even if you're a casual listener, you know the importance of the Basie band and Lester Young and Sweets Edison and Freddie Green, Walter Page, Papa Joe Jones, etc., etc., etc. So, yeah. <coughs> Talk about sparks, major sparks before, you know, the explosion, right? Uh, there you have it. Now, the third and the last song that we heard in that set was Everybody Loves My Baby, which is, well, it since has become a jazz standard. And what's interesting to note here is that it, it says it's a vocal version, which is odd because 99% of the tune it's all instrumental. Now, it's killer instrumental. It's by Fletcher Henderson and his orchestra from um, November of 1924, yet again, right? And it features Kaiser Marshall on the drums, Ralph Esquerdo on the brass bass, uh, Charlie Dixon on the banjo, uh, Charlie Green on the trombone, uh, as well as Elmer Chambers and Howard Scott on the trumpet. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I read the wrong line there. Uh, Charlie Green on the trombone, Buster Bailey on the clarinet. Got that right. Um, Elmer Chambers, Howard Scott on the trumpet section. As well as a new up-and-comer called Louis Armstrong. That's right. Louis Armstrong was in the trumpet section. And Don Redman... That's right. Don Redman was clarinet, alto sax, and also the arranger. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Um, and on top of that, uh, Buster Bailey was on clarinet, and on the clarinet and tenor saxophone, Coleman Hawkins. That's right. Fletcher Henderson, Coleman Hawkins, Buster Bailey, Don Redman, and Louis Armstrong. 
were all in a band together, and it was the Fletcher Henderson Orchestra from 1924. Now, that little bit at the end, that little vocal part at the very, 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 very tail end was none other than Louis Armstrong. And you're like, okay, well, yeah, that makes sense. But here's what you don't understand. That was the very, very, very first time Louis Armstrong recorded his voice before it was all his cornet or his trumpet. Mark it, November 24th, 1924. Louis Armstrong first put his voice to record. And that will be very important going forward. Now, <clears throat> as we're talking about this, keep this in mind. Now, Louis Armstrong has went from being just a, a main performer in New Orleans, Louisiana, to never wanting to leave New Orleans unless only one person called him to do so, and that would be Papa Joe, which is Papa Joe King Oliver, and King Oliver did just that. He called Louis to New or uh, to from New Orleans to Chicago, and he did so, and he made a host of great recordings, like Dipper Mouth Blues, which he wasn't featured on, and his first solos like Chimes Blues, which he was featured, and it was a it had a load of great potential, and a lot of other performers heard that exact same potential, and we're starting to see that sprinkled in, right? <clears throat> Ma Rainey. Mother of the Blues, called Louis Armstrong to be the cornet on C.C. Ryder Blues. Fletcher Henderson eventually talked Louis out of becoming out of the, the King Oliver group and to become a part of his own orchestra. Which, you know, there are stories from Doc Cheatham that L Louis would sell out just because of his talent alone. Would, would make the, the Fletcher Henderson Orchestra sell out at the Vendome Theater in Chicago. Or was it the Roseland Ballroom? One of the two. Anyway, night after night after night, people would come just to see Louis. And that's the, that's the key. And it was also during this period that he records his voice on record for the exact same time. So you can see there are treads pointing towards an explosion. All these sparks along with great other creative sparks like Sidney Bechet and Coleman Hawkins being in the Fletcher Henderson Orchestra and being around that kind of artistry like Louis Armstrong as he is developing before he really shoots off like a rocket. You've also got great sparks of creativity like James P. Johnson, Jelly Roll Morton, Bix Beiderbeck, Freddie Keppard, Papa Charlie Jackson, Ethel Waters, Ma Rainey, a young, 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 young Duke Ellington with the Washingtonians. Right? So, all of this is coming to a head. Right? To the moment before the explosion. So, but what we're doing here, and we've got one last little set for you, <coughs> is we are giving you a, an oral landscape, if you will, about what the times were looking like what the sounds were at the time, what every day, some of the most hit music of that day for 1923 and 1924 sounded like. So you're getting a, a microcosm of what these two years were like. So um, 
Up next, we have another feature from Bubber Miley, the trumpet player that we just heard with the Washingtonians, uh, with Jake Frazier on the trombone, and a group called the Kansas City Five, not to be confused with the Kansas City Five, six or seven that had Lester Young. That's many, many, many years down the road. This is the very first one. And um, it's a track called Louisville Blues from November 1924.
Okay, so that was Whistler and his jug band with I'm a Jazz Baby. And this is the kind of music that was going on. Jug bands, blues vocalists, jazz vocalists, you know, white bands, um, you know, trying to really say something. Uh, white bands that are sounding like farm animals. Uh, you have that Spanish tinge in some pieces like Jelly Roll Morton. You have... Uh, you know, blues vocalists, you know, like uh, Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith and Ethel Waters. And uh, you have, you know, uh, banjo pieces and other trumpet players and piano rolls like James P. Johnson and violin players like Eddie South and great, great players, too, like Sidney Bechet and Jimmy Noon and Freddie Capard. Um, but then you have stuff like the jug band thing. You know, and I'm a jazz baby, you know, and there's no telling how many copies that sold. And this is well before Folding Bed, which is about five years down the road. So even the jug bands developed, you know, like Whistler and his jug band. Um, yeah, Clifford's jug band. There was tons of great jug bands, you know, the Louisville jug band. Um, and speaking of Louisville, that was the track that we heard before. Uh, Bubber Miley on trumpet and Jake Frazier on the trombone. In the group, the Kansas City Five, uh, Louisville Blues, 
and not exactly the exact kind of sort of trumpet sounds of the growling that we heard Bubber play with Duke Ellington in the Washingtonians for Choo Choo, you know? So for the time period, that dude was pretty diverse, you know? Um, and I might add that the Whistler and his jug band, that I'm a Jazz Baby, was recorded December of 1924. So now you've had 25 tracks that lead you up to the moment before the explosion. And in that moment, what we have, uh, essentially, is like this uh, what, what's about to happen what I'm about to play for you is a group called the hot five and this is like jazz music's version of like I don't know like the justice league you know it's like a jazz justice league or it's like the Avengers you know where it's like some of the biggest names together it's like the first super group you know um, it was kind of like the first Beatles you know everybody had an integral part like there was no real weak link you know what I mean? Say what you will about Ringo, but he was a great drummer, okay? Anyway, my point is that all of what you've heard in this podcast so far is leading up to what I'm about to play you. It is the moment before the explosion, before the artistic sonic boom. And what you're about to hear is an incredible explosion of artistic talent and, and 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 pure just emotion and it it's just it it has better rhythm everything is just heightened so yeah I, but I'm gonna let Louis totally take over announce the group and you'll hear some of the most swing and jazz that you've heard for this period of time this is the moment before the explosion and Louis Armstrong is the bomb Thank you. 
Santa Claus. just revolutionary you had five of the best musicians you had Louis Armstrong on the trumpet and on the vocals announcing everybody he did not sound near as shy as what he sounded like with the Fletcher Henderson Orchestra just a year before because this was recorded in 1925 Kid Ori the great New Orleans legend was on the trombone Lil Hardin who is Lil Harden Armstrong, Louis Armstrong's wife, on the piano, and also part of the King Oliver Creole Jazz Band from 1923. Johnny Dodds on the clarinet has played with everybody. Everybody. From Jelly Roll Morton to King Oliver with his 1923 recordings of the Creole Jazz Band, and he was the top clarinet man in jazz at this point in time. So, of course, Louis got the best. And Johnny St. Cyr on the banjo. Incredible banjo player. Uh, play with everybody as well. So, it's five of the best. And he would only go on to expand that to make it the hot sevens instead of the hot fives. Now, what's interesting, like the Beatles, right? Because that was a great analogy. This was not a touring band. This is not a group that went out and they weren't like a touring thing or, or even played in clubs. This group was like a studio group, just like the later Beatles. Their art was the art of making like phenomenal jazz recordings. They didn't leave anything to slop. They rehearsed hard. They made sure that everything was tight as could be. And the solos were just that much tighter and that much more artistic. The rhythm was just that much tighter. The the little falls that Louis does at the very end just by himself, that, that was just a little bit tighter than most trumpet. But everything was just ratcheted up to its full degree. Everything was to the nines musically. And that's what was so special, is this was like the super group for jazz. And it's in the hands of Louis Armstrong. And he would only become yet even more comfortable with vocals and start to sing tunes. And then he would rephrase tunes. And then he started scatting tunes on records with this group. And that would make everybody, whether you're a horn player, whether you're a vocalist, whether you're an arranger, whether you're a band leader, it made everybody up their game. From Bing Crosby singing 
those Irish tenor-esque things with Paul Whiteman to trumpet players like Bix Beiderbecke to reed players like Jimmy Noon and Sidney Bechet to band leaders and composers like Duke Ellington and Jelly Roll Morton. It made them up their whole game because jazz is in Lewis's hands now. He wasn't the first, but he was the first to make it a real art form with a real statement to say something that was worth something. Hmm. I sincerely hope you have enjoyed this podcast. I certainly have. Uh, thank you so, so, so much for listening. Uh, and the famous, famous words of Duke Ellington, we do love you madly, and we do appreciate you listening. Remember to check out the website, Dr. Jazz Podcast, D-R-J-A-Z-Z Podcast.wordpress.com to find out <coughs> track, album, and artist information for each one of our episodes. Remember, you can also find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, everything like that. We'd love to hear from you. <coughs> and, yeah, just thank you. Hopefully you've dug it. And if you enjoyed it, please let me know. Uh, yeah. And so until next time, and you're even, hey, you know what? You're even hearing Louis Armstrong behind us here. There you go. So even Louis upped his game. Mm. So until next time, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Y'all be good now, because in jazz, we trust.